HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. I'm Michael Ameko from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from the Heritage Radio Network on Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45, a little bit late today, kind of as normal. Uh, joining the studio with uh, Nastasha uh, the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? Good. Good. And uh, who do we got there in the engineering? We got Jack. And Evan. Hey, Evan. Yeah, I rushed in so quickly because I was late that uh, a lot of, you know what, uh, the weather must be changing because I saw a lot of... Signs of illicit love on the streets. Walking over here in Bushwick. Do you, what? Really? Do, do you miss? Do you miss the uh, the overnight detritus on the streets of Bushwick? Now that you've moved to He's Manhattan, moving back. You're moving back to Bushwick? No, Bedsty. Oh, I, said, well, I noticed that you didn't change your uh, your uh, Twitter whatever in the hell it's called. Whatever in the hell oh, it thing. still says Bushwick. It still says Bushwick. Yikes! It's up slow. But wait, what's illicit love in the streets? Oh well, I'm just assuming that if you have to throw your Spence away on the streets, that you're not, uh, you know, you're not doing anything. Oh, I see. Kid. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Gross. Yeah, real gross. Gross. Uh, anything? Anything good going on, Nastasha? Nope. Anything bad going on? Nope. Yeah, nice. Well, I nothing to report here. Okay. Uh, call in your questions to seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Uh, Johnny Kirk wrote in, uh, hey Dave, uh, he called I guess last week, uh, Jack, and we just missed him. Uh, sorry, just missed the opportunity to call into cooking issues today. My question is about curing bellies for bacon. What is your take on vacuum packaging pork bellies in a dry cure situation? Should I pull a full vacuum on a multi-vac style uh, chamber machine? Uh, do anaerobic conditions speed the osmosis and denaturation process? What are the pros and cons? And he gives you uh, his cure mix here is uh, two pounds of uh, kosher salt, uh, 16 ounces for that. So I guess two, two pounds kosher salt, one pound of uh, brown sugar, and two ounces of sodium nitrite is his cure mix. Uh, thanks for any advice. Okay. So look uh, – 
the the article that I, you know you, there's there's a couple of articles to look at. Okay, one there's an interesting series of articles on um, Spanish, uh, I, you know, I, I, Iberico style and, and other Spanish cured hams, uh, written by uh, Barat, spanning uh, the last name Barat. I don't know if it's a man or a woman, uh, spanning from roughly 2002 to fairly recently, like 2010, 2011, on uh, a technique. Um, where they directly thaw frozen uh, ham. So a lot of these guys buy frozen product. Uh, I guess not for the really expensive stuff, but you know, the, there's a, obviously an economic advantage to buying a frozen product. For instance, uh, you can do it any time of uh, year, independent of slaughter. You can um, get equal uh, weights of hams together, especially if you're uh, like a lower quantity producer. You can store them uh, until you have a, a batch of similar properties to cure together, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so there's a lot of testing of thawing uh, in a brine as opposed to thawing in a fridge and then brining uh, and you know the results as usual you know kind of mixed but they also test vacuum pulsing but the one I think you should look at the article I think you should look at is called development of a modified dry curing process for beef uh, by Hayes and this is sometime in the in the early uh, early 2000s I think it's like 2004 2005 something like that I don't have the year written down but uh, what Hayes tested Hayes et al tested uh, was um, taking a beef lean beef muscles to do dry cures on this is another European study uh, and uh, I think it's UK uh, and they tested normal dry curing so, so salt they tested uh, salt in a vacuum bag they tested salt. Uh, they t- tested salt in a vacuum tumble operation, and they tested. I shouldn't say vacuum bag. It's not vacuum bag. Uh, vacuum tumble and tumble only. Now, the interesting thing is, is that all of the papers uh, on this subject uh, cite a bunch of literature saying that vacuum, uh, the application of vacuum, or what they call pulsed vacuum, increases the rate of cure penetration or increases the speed. There's a couple things to look at. There's speed. There's also uh, evenness. Right of cure throughout the thing, uh, so these and also they they test things like tenderness, drip loss, all this stuff. Anyway, so a uh, bunch of studies on this. However, these these folks are are focused primarily on pulse vacuum, and what that means is what they're they're. The, what they expect to be the uh, reason that things happen is that when you apply a vacuum, the meat expands for a variety of reasons. The moisture inside uh, starts to vaporize and pushes it apart, and also any air trapped on the inside of the meat will start expanding and push apart uh, any veins uh, or any, any, any vessels, I should say, or any air gaps. Now, anyone that's used a vacuum machine knows that if you vacuum meat that's warm, it, it blows up just like a marshmallow does. I've seen you know fish rip themselves apart. I've seen steaks like inflate to you know fifty percent of their of their size, right? So then the theory being now that when you uh, apply a vacuum like that and the meat expands to whatever degree it does, or the air inside expands to whatever degree it does, the the insides of the meat are somehow more available to the outside. When the air comes back in and the pressure is reapplied, that the uh, whatever is outside, right, the exogenous stuff gets injected in. Now these guys uh, who are in the beef one are testing a dry cure, so not a not a brine. And I don't know whether or not their results they they showed not that great a result for uh, in terms of increase in uh, amount of salt. Reaching the interior, and you know, by you know, by by association, also nitrites because they're also very diffusible uh, things. Um, tr- trites, not trades, and the um, 
so they showed not that uh, big of a difference or not, not a lot of benefit to doing what they call vacuum pulse alone. However, uh, they're using a dry, uh, a dry thing. And my feeling is, is that maybe uh, – you know, it maybe in other words, maybe in a wet wet cure application, it has more of a more of a, an advantage. They showed that tumbling increases any sort of tumbling, tumbling and vacuum tumbling increase substantially the uh, the rates of penetration and you know the evenness of the cure and whatnot. Now, my feeling is is that. What they're saying, their proposed mechanism for why the vacuum works, right? And the reason, by the way, the, the things I, I said, things expand a because they're probably if the meat's not fully chilled, there's going to be uh, moisture vaporization because when you apply a vacuum to something, it decreases the boiling temperature. You get a lot of vaporization. You know, you can boil water at room temperature in a vacuum. Anyone that has a vacuum machine knows this. Anyone that doesn't is always shocked. You're like, well, what do you mean boil water? Well, you know, you, re- you reduce the pressure. As you reduce the pressure, uh, it's easier for water molecules to flash off to vaporize, and so they do, and so it boils at. at a lower temperature, and that can cause the, the expansion of the meat. Anyways, if the actual thing that's going on is that the real benefit of the penetration is only at the moment that the vacuum presses the stuff into it, then a vacuum pulse on a dry-cured product is not going to have too much of an effect until a localized brine layer exists on the surface of the meat. Now, this is just speculation on my part, but my feeling is is that, A, uh, like – until that liquid kind of forms in the dry cure scenario, you're not going to get that much of a benefit from the uh, vacuum. Uh, but you know, I myself actually have noticed like quite a benefit in in wet and semi wet th- things, right? But uh, as the article points out, most of the benefits mo- they're not done by scientific studies; they're done empirically, and that's kind of a way of saying that cooks and you know R and D uh, folks at, at plants know how much vacuum to apply, and, and the fact that it increases or, uh, you know the, the rate of curing it from an empirical standpoint instead of from studies. They just know because they know. Uh, so uh, my feeling is maybe once it becomes a liquid uh, that, that, you know, that it's going to help a lot more. And another thing that's interesting that I hadn't uh, thought about in the past is this. Um, if it's the pulse that's important, most of the procedures that I saw that these folks were using were single-pulsed things. In other words, they're only pulsing the vacuum one time. They're, apl- they're, they're sucking a vacuum, and just by the way, the protocols uh, that they're sucking is a 90% vacuum. They're moving I, – and I don't know whether or not that's for um, – they think that's a, a better vacuum to suck versus what we normally suck in a, in a chamber vacuum, which is much higher, you know, 98, 99, 99, 9. Uh, in other words, so – uh, and you know, by the way, just so you know, like like an old timer se- sale uh, seller of uh, vacuum tumblers, I spoke to like, years ago, like seven eight years ago. You know, I told him kind of the the vacuums that we were applying uh, in in you know in kitchens, and he's like, no, 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 no. He's like, you need to apply much less vacuum. He he said. Uh, again, probably not backed up with science from the empirical thing that if you suck uh, too strong a vacuum that in, – in, in his words, the pores close back up again. I, I, at the time, I was like, I don't, I don't really understand what the hell – I really don't understand what the hell you're saying. Uh, but um, – and to this day, I still don't really understand what the hell he's saying. But it made sense to him. And what he's really trying to say is regardless of any studies, he finds that vacuum tumbling works best at um, – not intense vacuum levels, like in, in on the order of 90% of the uh, uh, air being removed, right? So 10% residual. Uh, and that is, in fact, what these studies uh, all run at, a single pulse uh, where they maintain 90% 
uh, vacuum, so 10% air remaining. They, they maintain that for a period of time and then release back to atmosphere. But if it's the pulsing that does it, why just do it once? When we're doing vacuum infusion of fruits, right, we put it in the bag and then we, we suck a vacuum on it. Bam, we infuse it. Then we suck it. We leave it in the bag because you don't want to volatilize a lot of aroma off. Please, people, don't ruin your pro- – whatever. Anyway, so then you apply another vacuum to the bag, right, and as you do that – uh, the bag expands. Why? Because I told you that uh, water vapor is going to be formed as the pressure uh, reduces. Water vapor forms. The bag inflates again. Then you can let the air back in. Bam! You can do it again and again and again. So why pulse just once? Stas, why just pulse just once? She's like, uh, not only do I not know, I really don't care. I really just don't give a crap. But anyway, but the um, – so that's my feeling. So maybe maybe a, a, a multiple pulse uh, situation. But go take a look at that article, and I'm, I'm still going to do a little more research to see whether I can figure out whether or not there is um, a, a benefit or a lot of articles uh, on the uh, dry – on, on dr- pulsed vacuum for dry versus pulsed vacuum for wet. Um, but you, you specifically care about dry, so it's interesting you know, for, for, for that standpoint. But I didn't get a chance, unfortunately, to go back and read the references. If you go to that paper that I mentioned, which is uh, Development of Modified Dry Curing Process for Beef by Haze, you can see uh, that they, um, they have a bunch of references for people that do think that vacuuming helps quite a bit. And so you can uh, check those out. I didn't, have a, uh, I didn't have time. But I'll read you a little chunk of this uh, article just so you have a, a flavor for the kind of crap I read for you people. Uh, the salt content, table one, between the core and outer regions differed with a P of less than 0.001 for all treatments with the exception of the tumble-only treatment, which had similar salt cont- in the, uh, content in the outer and core regions. This result indicated that for the tumble-only treatment, there was a more even distribution of cure ingredients in the meat. Comparing core regions only, the salt content for vacuum tumble and tumble-only treatments were found to be different to the control. Vacuum tumble and tumble-only treatments had the highest salt content for the core region of 3.3 and 3.1% compared to 2.1% for the control. This result indicated the potential of vacuum tumbling and tumbling only treatments in accelerating the curing process, i.e. rate of diffusion of curing ingredients to the core of the muscle. So the, uh, oh, and then, oh, here you go. Vacuum is known to increase core absorption. Here's a paper you can look up. Solomon et al. from 1980, as well as extraction of salt-soluble proteins. Sharma, Kumar, Nada, and Kumar, two Kumars in one paper, 2002. This is interesting. You know, in my, in Dax's class, right? He's in third grade now. Uh, I like Kumar and Kumar. That's my next band. Kumar and Kumar, 2002. Uh, th- so uh, he has two, two Sophia uh, Lees in his class. And check this out. You ready for this? They go by, I'm not kidding here, Sophia Lee 1 and Sophia Lee 2. Who the hell wants to be Sophia Lee number 2, like player 2 all the time? It's not like they switch up. It's not like they're like, this week I'm Sophia Lee 1 and this time I'm Sophia Lee 2. And here's what you, you want to know is even more messed up, Stas? You ready for this? They're not the only two Sophias in the class. There's a Sophia uh, – there's uh, another Sophia in the class. So they can't even just go by Sophia 1 and Sophia 2 because there's a Sophia 3 if you just use the first name. I forget what the, what the third Sophia's last name is. But that's a boatload of Sophias in one – I mean it's not, like, it's not like Dax is in a class of 300 kids and there's like you know three Sophias and two of them miraculously – by the way, unrelated happen to be Sophia Lee. Uh, you know, at least unrelated far back as Adam uh, and Eve. Eve, more importantly, I guess. Well, who knows me? Well, whatever. You know, Mike, you get my point. Not, not, not closely related. So, what the hell? Did you know Sophia was such a popular name right no, now? No, no. Or f- whatever it is, nine years ago, there was such a popular... No. I don't think I've ever known Sophia. No. Have we? No? No. Maybe I have. I don't know. Uh, 
So anyway, where did that come from? Kumar and Kumar? Mm-hmm. Oh, God only knows what the hell's wrong with my brain. So uh, anyway, so the vacuum tumbling, by the way, if you want to know the, uh, what's going on there, the theory is is that the beating the crap out of the meat uh, – well, cha- not only speeds the penetration of the uh, cure to the core, but uh, actually um, like ridges around and creates more extractable protein, and that's part of what's going on there. So it also affects texture. So anyway, uh, mildly interesting for people that find that sort of thing interesting, I guess. Uh, at Clefs wrote in, uh, which I guess hopefully everyone is listening because that's the kind of crap we talk about all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stuff's like, uh, I know. Uh, at Clefts wrote in, uh, at Cooking Issues, what is the useful range uh, in microliters for micropipettes when doing cocktail work? I know you've mentioned it before, but I can't find it. Okay, so there's, there's a bunch of different – so micropipette, as I've said a billion times here, uh, you know, in cocktail work, it's one of the few times when weighing by volume is what we do uh, as opposed to by weight. I mean, kitchens almost always run on weight bo- weight, weight basis. You know, if, if you're normal, uh, they run on weight basis measurements. But in um, you know, typically only water is the thing that translates easily back and forth between weight and volume. Um, but in cocktail work, we almost exclusively work on uh, on a volume basis for a number of reasons. One, because the most important thing in a cocktail is where the uh, where the wash line hits, where the actual drink hits in the side of the glass. You know, I did a I judged a contest once, and the the bartender who was doing the contest and it was just somewhere else, not in the U.S. and and the bartender had radically different wash lines. So the two drinks that the guy poured were totally different in the glass. Like one was higher and one was lower. And I was like, holy crap, the wash lines aren't the same. And the guy sitting next to me, who was also from you know not from here, was like, so what? You believe that? I remember you telling me this a couple times. Yeah, but because I still can't believe it. Mm-hmm. What would you feel like if you got the short glass and and uh, and you know your your whoever you were out with drinking with got the tall glass? They're not good. Yeah, especially if it was champagne. Am I mm-hmm. right? If you got the short glass of champagne, and that happened to me the other day, I got the short glass of champagne. I was like, what the what? Especially when you pay by the glass, you don't want the short. How much do you hate it when you're paying by the glass and you get the short glass? You're like, oh, gone. Yeah. And then you feel obliged to order another one just so you catch up because you know you're splitting the check. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Anyways, I don't know what the hell got me on that. So the wash lines are different. So that's why you, like a lot of the things we do, we do by volume. Um, also, it gets complicated with weights because the densities of our stuff is you know, very different. And really what we care about is volume. Also, it's uh, you know, inconvenient uh, if you need to measure small volumes to do it by uh, weight because you typically lose a lot. So what a micropipette does is it allows you to very accurately, very quickly, and very repeatably measure out small volumes of liquids. So where does this come up? One, it comes up in recipe development, especially when you're working with things that are uh, small in quantity, so bitters, tinctures – Salt solutions, uh, sometimes acids, depending on, on what you what you do. But whenever you're doing centrifugation and you're using wine finding agents to um, to do clarif- to be clarification aids, which is what you know we do. We typically use uh, Pectinex Ultra SPL, which is almost completely dose insensitive. You can just splash it in by eye; it doesn't matter as long as you don't add so much that it affects the flavor or the concentration or anything like this. It, it's really fairly dose insensitive. It's hard to OD on SPL unless you go crazy. SPL is the enzyme that I used to break down the cell walls of fruits and vegetables and olives and whatever. Um, so, uh, so, well, so, so sell everything. Breaks down pectin, breaks down hemicellulose, breaks down. I don't know. It has some cellulase activity as well. Not a lot. Doesn't do lignin. You know, anyway, whatever. So the um, so you know that one I don't necessarily need the micropipette for, although some people use it. What I use it for uh, 
every day is um, uh, kiesel saw and chitosan because wine finding agents that work on um, electrostatic charge as their basis for function, right? They're 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 causing the uh, flocking, the agglomeration of uh, char- opposite charged things, right? Those, if you overdose or underdose, man, it's useless. You've just ruined everything. So you really want to get an accurate, repeatable dose, and you're dealing uh, with quantities like two uh, grams, two milliliters rather per liter of product, and so uh, you need something that can measure in that range. Now there are different kinds of uh, micro pipettes and pipettes with uh, various degrees of difficulty of use. The ones I use are uh, auto pipetters that are adjustable. So you can, sometimes you get them and they're just a single range, and so you you boop 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 boop. You can only do one thing. The adjustable ones and the ones I use are by Cylogic. Cylogics, uh, uh, I believe, is the name. Uh, are pretty awesome, and you buy them in uh, a range of things. So the one that I use, and they're specified in microliters, right? The one I use is uh, 1,000 microliters, which is one milliliter, all the way up to 5,000 microliters, which is five milliliters. Now, I found that I very rarely need less than that, less than one mil per pop, and it's extremely accurate there. However, it says explicitly in, in, in the instructions, to never turn the adjustment knob, and I think I paid under $100 for the one I have, uh, or around there, um, never turn the adjustment knob past what they want because it's going to ruin the calibration, and also it gets less accurate because the, it, the way it works is there's a piston that's very finely graduated, and you, you push down until you feel the first stop. That pushes the piston down a measurable amount, and the amount that's pushed down is dependent upon how you set it. You, there's a twist where it goes click, 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 and you set in exactly how much you want, and it's got one of those old-school like speedometer click, click, click things, which is pretty awesome, or like a tally counter. You push down until you feel the first detente. You stick it into the liquid. You li- release on, on the knob. It sucks up what you want. You put it uh, into the vessel you're going to push into. You go push down to the detente position and then boom, past it. And it has an over travel that pushes out the extra so you don't have anything left. And that's how it gets very high accuracy. Anyways, they specifically say do not turn this sucker below one milliliter or over five uh, milliliters. Now, I've never turned it over. I've never turned it over five. I have well, I shouldn't say I did. A bartender once cranked this sucker down to half a milliliter, and I was like, oh, you ruined it. And they didn't. I, I tested it. I turned it back up to where it was supposed to be, up to like two mils, and it was accurate. Boop, 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 boop. And now it goes down to, boop, boop, boop. Now it goes down to half a milliliter, so, so it works. But that's the size I recommend. And if you need a different one, if you're doing very highly accurate work, you can also get one uh, that does like – I think uh, 200 uh, microliters to 1,000, and that'll get almost everything uh, you, you need. I very rarely use the second digit. I really care about milliliters and decimal milliliters, and so you know the last, the last digit, I, you know, I'm, I'm basically ignoring it. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, because it, mine reads uh, the, a single digit for the thousands and then uh, of microliters, then uh, – um, a tens digit for tenths uh, of well for hundreds rather, and then uh, uh, another digit for tenths. It doesn't read the third digit. At least I don't think it does. I can't in my head it doesn't, and I don't really care if it does anyway. Yeah. Right? You want to take a break? Sure. Take a break. Come right back with cooking issues. <laughs> This one's a song by my friend Herbert Spilfington.
Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. And, oh, welcome back uh, to the cooking issues. So, uh, we had a note in from, uh, and this it makes sense, let me see here, uh, at asquiddy.com, and the name it was a cephalopod. But, you know, but cep- cep- cephalopods, for those of you that, you know, aren't hip to your nomenclature, cephalopods, which means foothead, uh, are uh, the kind of most advanced mollusks in the world. So, we got your, you got your squid. You got your, uh, you, you know, squids are awesome, right? You got your your octopus, octopi. My personal favorites, by the way, the giant Pacific octopus, baller. Love the giant Pacific octopus. I've said many times, I will say it again. Uh, the, 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 well, okay, you got your you got your chambered nautilus, you got your cuttlefish, master of camouflage. They're all really good at camouflage. They're like endlessly fascinating uh, and and for the most part, delicious creatures. I've never had a Nautilus. I don't really know what the hell it tastes like or anything. Uh, and they're kind of the most, you know, the Nautilus are the most primitive kind because they still have their shell and they sit there like, you know, blah, 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 blah. you like Nautiluses? Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. They're kind of floating around in that weird shell that's upside down. But um, yeah, the trick is, is that, uh, so cephalopods, extraordinarily smart, but in a way that uh, is very hard for us to get uh, a grip on because uh, their sort of um, brain power developed entirely differently from you know it's entirely different from looking at the way our brain works for instance versus the way uh, a dog's brain works because we're you know infinitely closer related right you got to remember that you know uh, you know we split off from uh, mollusks uh, you know back before the spinal cord was invented you know what i'm saying and so uh you know we're talking about these guys evolved from the same kind of crew that are like clams and things like this right so it's uh you know i.e like almost all of them are big big dumb you know what i mean like i think very few of us have a problem thinking mechanistically about uh clams and muscles, whereas you should have a problem thinking mechanistically about the kind of uh, brain functioning of, or the neural functioning, whatever you want to call it, of the uh, of uh, octop- an octopus. Uh, anyway, and as I've said a zillion times before, and we'll say again, this time I'll actually get to it before I go off on a tangent. Uh, the problem with them um, is that they don't live very long at all. Uh, as a group, uh, cephalopods are short-lived creatures. So even you know uh, Arctuthis or however you pronounce it, the giant squid that, uh, that they've recently captured on camera. You know, you're talking and you're talking something that is freaking big. A freaking big squid is only living for you know couple couple of years like five six years you know what i mean like a, a giant pacific octopus i think it gets like three to five years out uh, you know out of its life and then because as soon as like the woman or whatever you know the, the female as soon as she uh lays her eggs and they hatch she goes senile and dies and then uh, and doesn't eat by the way the entire time that, that, that she's fanning her eggs there and then the uh male 
uh, as soon as it does its 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 business with the, with the ladies, just starts wandering around on the floor of the ocean until it gets eaten apart. Goes goes uh, goes senile. Uh, so it's uh, they're interesting. So the, the, in other words, like the only thing stopping them from either uh, killing us and taking over the world, or else uh, us uh, you know using them as uh, as you know butlers in little aquariums that can like wheel around uh, with joysticks is the fact that they don't they don't live very long. So uh, you know clearly. Uh, at Squiddy, a cephalopod has an interest in this because of the Twitter name. But uh, he says, uh, or she, I don't know, because we don't know whether it's, uh, uh, whether, anyway. We do have a caller. I just want to let the caller know we'll get to, oh, yeah, we, we'll get we the, should we'll, finish this. All right, we'll get there. We'll get there right yeah. there. Okay, so uh, he writes, lobsters feel pain or something. There's a Washington Post article uh, out that just came out uh, about it, and it details a lot of the research that's being done uh, that I've mentioned a lot of times on pain and nociception, what the difference between pain and nociception is. In other words, how can you measure that an animal feels pain versus just response to noxious stimulus, uh, no- noxious stimuli? And a lot of the work was done in uh, hermit crabs and decapod crustaceans, which were completely unrelated to uh, cephalopods, but uh, the research is being extended into cephalopods, and it's an interesting thing to uh, look at, so go take a look at that. Thanks to uh, Esquiddy for that. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Yeah, I've got a question. Um, hi to everybody. I'm just a new listener, but um, I've got a question. I found some old uh, corny kegs uh, that a farmer had that were like 20 years old. Right. And some of them had, one of them was like three quarters full of Mountain Dew. <laughs> and and it, it still held pressure and everything. And I mean, it, I had to blow the pressure off. And so I tasted it and it tasted like Mountain Dew. And I was, you know, wild hair, try to make just a little bit of wine out of this, out of this old Mountain Dew, right? So... Um, but but my yeast dies. So I was wondering if you knew of any way to remove sodium benzoate from a solution. Yeah, so that's your problem right there, is that there is – yeah, no, I don't know of any way to unpoison the Mountain Dew. Uh, I mean, specifically, that's what they were worried about. You know what I'm right, saying? Right, like, so sure. they, Yeah, that's, they, specifically, they, they had a sugary product, and they knew yeast was going to grow in it, and so they – Put you know some preservative, probably at that time benzoate into it. So I don't know of any way to thwart that. I can well, tr- I can try to look it up, but I, I don't. Well, I know. saw I, I did look it up, and I saw that HCl will, but then that'll just make it inedible again, right? I mean, you mean hydrochloric acid? Well, yeah. uh, wow, that's well. How much did they say to add? Well, they didn't. They didn't. That was kind of the problem. They said, you know, you can you can precipitate it out with uh, with HCl. It should turn to what a salt, I guess, because it's already a salt. But um, so you would get. So I mean, I, I just don't know. I don't know that process. I just didn't know if maybe you you would ever come across something like that. You, so you're putting in HCl. So presumably you're getting NaCl, and then uh, and then whatever hydrogen. Benzo, it is right. I don't even know what that is. Are they saying it turns yeah. into a gas and floats off? Are they saying it? What are they? I don't I have no. I have. I have no clue because it was just on a couple homebrew websites, and they were like, you know, how do I get rid of sodium benzoate? And, and the guy just said HCl, and you know, it did, did nothing else. So I, I just I, yeah. I don't even know what benzoate it is. You know what I mean? I, I don't right, know. Sure. I don't know the structure of it. Um, so so and on the website they said that it precipitates out, huh? My well, guess is I, that it's it's that the benzoate is something fairly large compared to normal things. You know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, right. But clearly, um, it's soluble. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. I just you know it was just just one of those uh, questions. I, I got the kegs last fall, and I just I worked with it a little bit with these little one gallon batches, and it just never nothing ever took off with it. So I knew what it was. It just was 
trying to see if I could get around that. Well, look, if it's if it's HCL, right? If HCL, it's, there's two things that could be going on, right? It's an acid attack, or it's some sort of like you say, some sort of precipitation is going on. You're somehow causing you know something benzoate to precipitate out. Although I don't really, I don't really, I don't know the chemistry of it, right? Okay. If it's an acid attack. And you're just and you're just you know destroying the sucker with acid. Then you can just dope back uh, NaOH, and you know it'll have a saltier version of. of and I've done that with uh, I've done that with um, stocks before. Now I had problems because I made soap. You know what I mean uh, with the fats that were in the so- stocks. But you know you're not getting any problems with uh, with excess uh, HCl on board. You know if you have the ability to to do that. But if it's a precipitation thing. I don't know. It's, someone has to know, or I can. You know, I have um, I have a bunch of old soda references from uh, the the '70s and um, '70s and '80s from the old AVI Tech series. Maybe they mentioned something about it, and I can I can try to do something. It's an interesting problem. Um, it's an interesting problem. Try to get rid of the 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 benzoate, huh? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I'm not even. I, I don't even know that Mountain Dew wine would be that good. It was just a kind of a curious type thing, you know. Well, how's it taste? The Mountain Dew tastes fine. It just, you know, it just never, never started, never started working. Had it changed at all? Not, not really. I mean, I couldn't tell that it changed at all. And the guy put it in there in like 1994 is when he got those kegs. Dang. I know. I, it blew my mind that they were still even holding pressure that the uh, that that the O rings hadn't gone. Yeah, well, they're pretty good. I mean, like, like you know, like uh, they're pretty good. I would bet that I would bet that you should change those O rings. Uh, oh sure, no, no, yeah. that, that, that's already been done. But yeah, yeah, I just kept some of the stuff back. You know, I just, I just, I just siphoned it out and kept some of it out. You know, those corny for, kegs are great. You know what I mean? Oh, they're awesome. Yeah, I bought ten of them, and I mean they're 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 just super. Do you? How long ago did you buy them? Uh, last fall, um, like October. Yeah, you know, like it's like been a couple of years now, but like you know, five, eight. Well, tell me how ten years ago when I was buying a lot of them, they were free. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, during the changeover from premix, and I think a lot depends on what part of the country you're in, because uh, you know the the premix postmix happened at different times depending on you know obviously if your local water is really bad, you tended to stay with uh, premix a lot of the time, but. Um, right. Or you know, not bad, but not you know, not tasting good. You know, so uh, they're they're much more expensive than they than they, than oh, they sure. used to be. It's crazy. Well, I had heard something. This is just a little aside that that India still uses the corny kegs a whole lot, and that the demand over there was pulling was putting the price up. Oh, really? Well, first of yeah. all, you know, all the home brewers are buying them. Sure. A, a lot of the cocktail folks who are doing uh, kegging are buying them, and I guess you know they're being shipped over. But uh, it got so bad that I think that they're making them again. So, in other words, like the ones, that you, a lot of the ones that people are buying now aren't actually surplus. You know, they're right. They're new. Yeah. They're yeah, new. yeah. You can. You, yeah. You can. You can still buy the new ones. I mean, they're they're a whole lot higher. You know, I think I paid like twenty bucks a piece for these things, and you know, I, I bought every one that I could. Oh yeah, and it used to yeah. be, you know, the, I I I, uh, I shop uh, for a lot of my soda. Gear here at uh, Mark Power in Guntersville, Alabama, and uh, they used to have them like almost for nothing, just for the price of, and they would recondition them. I don't even know how the heck that they were able to sell them, but they stopped selling them a number of years ago, but they're, yeah, they're awesome. I've never played around. A lot of chefs um, nowadays are buying, I think, the smaller ones. They're really expensive, the three-gallon guys, because they're doing smaller batches and stuff, but uh. yeah. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask. Was the color changed at all in the Mountain Dew? Well, it, it changed a little bit, but, but not really. I mean, you know, not... Not as much as you would think, and there's actually two kegs that I didn't clean yet, and they're about half full, but I don't know what they're full of. One says one has a tag for uh, Pepsi, and it's pre-mixed, which I didn't understand. I didn't understand why they would have 
uh, kegged a premix, you know, and shipped it all over the place. You know, with just five gallons worth of with the, worth of Pepsi. Well, but, I mean, they probably. Oh, I mean, why they shipped it to you that way instead of venting it? Well, no, no, no. Well, why it didn't come as 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 concentrate and then mixed into the water? But your your comment earlier makes more sense that the water probably is not great and and they wanted to control the water. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the. I mean, I, I've never, you know, I never actually worked commercially with premix, but I think that a lot of the houses would show up with the kegs and swap them out. I don't know how much mixing was done in house, or you know what I'm saying. I think people would right. bring the five gallon charged stuff and then uh, uh, and then put it down i had one more question for you about the mountain dew but it's since left my head anyway well i'll try and look up for that and if i can find anything i'll uh i'll uh i'll we'll talk about uh getting rid of benzoate and making mountain dew wine that's a that's a hilarious idea i have well, to say it's just, just a wild you know just just came to me you know but yeah i appreciate you answering my question i i, I love the show i'm just trying to work through the backlog so cool. great well thanks for calling in talk to you soon thanks much have a good day you Bye. too that was awesome yeah right Mountain Dew wine. That's yeah. that like, well, you know, uh, I know what I meant to say. Like, uh, they, what's interesting is sugar sodas are fairly stable, but you guys ever, Stas doesn't ever drink diet soda, so she doesn't know. But if you have diet soda, the aspartame can break down into salts and uh, it loses its sweetness. So if you've ever had uh, even canned soda that's stored at extremely high uh, temperatures, like, you know, in a, in a laundry room uh, for a long time, like, it can taste weird and salty. So, like, if you made the wine, it would be very – it would be weird because it would be – all the sugar would be gone. Man, interesting idea. Uh, speaking of soda, uh, Tony Harrion from Brazil hey, real wrote – quick, though, just yeah. to finish up the cephalopod stuff. Yeah. On the cephalopodpage.org, you can buy an alar- like a crazy amount of cephalopods as Wait. a hobbyist. I mean, like, uh, you mean like different, uh, like octopus varieties and stuff. Yeah, they're like, rather difficult to keep. I think uh, it's crazy. Just this list is insane. Yeah, Some of them it, say like deadly, not recommended, but apparently you can still buy it. Well, one of the deadliest uh, creatures on a uh, on a on a weight basis is the blue ringed octopus. Uh, yeah, you know, and they're really pretty. I mean, like, look, they're they're freaking amazing. Like, you know, they like they change colors. They, I mean, they're awesome. Well, that's the one here. It says one of the most dangerous creatures on Earth. Yeah, man. You know. It's like, uh, but uh, very rare to get uh, to get stuck by you know or you know hit with one of those. They first of all they flash they flash at you when they're pissed. You know what I mean? So it's not like it's not like you're shaking hands with a blue ring octopus and it and you know and all of a sudden it zaps you. But you know I've, I've read a bunch of books on cephalopod behavior because I said like I, I like them and all the researchers, all the octopus researchers. Uh, Will say that they definitely have a like a sense when you're dealing with them that they're dealing with an intelligence, right? That that the cephalopod when it when it looks at you is actually looking at you and not just you know some sort of like dumb gaze. And they can perform amazing tasks uh, like you know so- solving uh, solving puzzles, doing things, get, reaching out of the tank, leave, you know to get things, uh, undoing jars to get inside of them, things like this. But what's strange is the stuff that they can't do. This is what like when you when you research them, it's uh, w- it's amazing 
because they have such intense abilities in some in some ways. Like they're they're like a lot a lot of their neurons have to do with the coloring and texture of their skin. Uh, their skin is much more highly tweaked than ours is, much more. Uh, but uh, they don't have certain things that we would think it, uh, are completely normal, like uh, like the ability to know exactly where their tentacle is in space. Because I guess they're they don't have a structure like we have internal structure, and so they don't have the same proprioception uh, kind of uh, things that we do. So things that we take for granted. Uh, they 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 have very difficult abilities with and things that we would never think that they could do. They can do with ease. So it's uh, they're yeah they're fascinating. Love myself some cephalopod. All right. So Tony Harrion wrote in from Brazil. Hello, cooking issues and the HRN team. Um, by the way, uh, this fits in nicely with the Mountain Dew because it's a question about soda and premix specifically. Hope everyone is doing well. I've got a question for Dave concerning two very beloved subjects of ours: soda and cocktails. I'm designing a cocktails on tap system and was wondering about the tap valves. Dave has mentioned a couple of times about the Ibis Tower slash Becker, which is CM Becker, a corporation valve he uses for uh, his soda system. That is true. Uh, they can get it from Fox Equipment here in the U.S. That is what I was aiming for to dispense the drinks, at least until I looked up the price tag for that tower. Almost $400 for the two-faucet tower and $350 for the single on Fox 2Xs like Red Fox. Remember Red Fox? Remember San Fran's son? Mm-hmm. One, one of the great theme songs of all time. All right, all right, all right. Uh, Fox, I'm being told that I can't talk about how awesome the Sanford and Son theme song is, even though that is, is an amazing theme song. Uh, FoxEquipment2Xs.com. Wow. Uh, the wow is about the price. In fact, my biggest surprise was how much you guys love your soda even more than I do. Or was it eBay Kung Fu? Your no duct tape New Year's resolution from a while back must be tremendously effective. Jokes aside, in my case, uh, throw a 95% import tax and shipping to Brazil. You know that? Like, people in Brazil when they order stuff from here have to pay like double like the tax is like some intense intense stuff I don't know how they're allowed to get away with that because we don't tax the crap out of Brazilian stuff when it comes here do we? I don't know I don't know about it uh, I could almost buy 2,200 liters of outstanding bottled sparkling water around here instead I was recommended the Perlick 545 PC flow control faucet for much less to help control foaming uh, and uh, you link a homebrew thing here right I assume from pictures and schematics that the compensator mechanism is pretty different from the two do you believe that the Perlick will fit well for cocktails dispensed from a corny keg system could the Ibis really do that much different for this application and what alternatives could you recommend uh, my main concerns as it, they should be are excessive foaming and loss of carbonation I appreciate your insight Keep up the good work. Tony Harrion. Okay, here's the deal. The Ibis Tower with the uh, Becker premix on it is expensive because they're taking a uh, premix valve, a nice one, and they're retrofitting it onto a beer tower, and they're charging you an exorbitant rate, and it looks really nice. So you're paying for a lot of chrome. You're paying for the fact that nobody uses these damn things anymore. By the way, the tower is nice because it's got a chilling line in it as well to chill the tower because uh, it's you know similar to like a Cobra head, but it's called Ibis because it's thinner than the Cobra heads. Anyways. Uh, it's expensive because of all the chrome and because nobody wants it, right? The problem with soda is uh, everybody knows that the um, that the soda guns, the ones that they use in uh, post-mix, suck. We all know they suck, right? The Wonder Bar and all their variants. We all know that they uh, they totally rob you of carbonation, that, that, that in general they're not clean enough and they make horrible tasting stuff. Everybody knows this, right? Uh, but whenever anyone tries to go back to a single valve dispensing, because that's the way to do it, they always go to the beer-style valves, like the one that you recommend. And the problem is this. Beer is put through a much lower pressure than any of the stuff we're dealing with because it has a lower alcohol alcohol content than cocktail.
cocktails do. And it also has less carbonation than either soda does or that cocktails do. So you're never going to get good results out of a beer uh, system with uh, – well, you're never going to get very highly carbonated results without foaming out of a beer system. The only choice you have is to get a soda, a pre-mixed soda thing because they are designed to compensate much larger pressure differences than you can get th- – uh, than are, can be compensated through a beer-style valve. The good news for you is you don't have to buy the expensive stuff if you don't need the tower. You can go to C.M. Becker. That's Charles Mary Becker is the corporation. And by the way, the people who pick up the phone there don't know a, a freaking thing about it because they happen to make these things. They don't care about it because it's not really good business anymore. But you can go on their website and look up premix valves and the standard wall mount valves that can be mounted on a piece of stainless steel, right? With a with and they just have a, a hose attachment on the back, and you take it down to like a quarter or a three eighths hose and put it through your cold plate. Those things will work just as well as the fancy one that I have. They just don't look nice coming out of a deck mounted sink deck mounted application. For my home application, I required that A, it looked nice because my wife's an architect. B, I'm not using duct tape anymore, remember? And uh, C, I need I couldn't wall mount like I had before. I needed to deck mount it. And so to, to have all of that, I needed to go with that expensive system. If you can wall mount, you can get them much less expensive on the order of I think they're like 30 bucks maybe for one of these premix valves and just mount it into the wall and you can get two, three, four of them uh, and, and, and line them up and they work great. The other thing that you need to realize with cocktails, cocktails foam a lot more, a lot more than soda does, a lot more. Uh, and it's because alcohol has a lower surface tension uh, than uh, water does and also it, it has uh, a higher viscosity. So you're lo- dealing with a higher viscosity to hold bubbles and a lower surface tension which, it, which increases the rate of bubble formation uh, in the liquid and what you have therefore is a nightmare. Also, you have typically for a given level of carbonation a feeling in your mouth more CO2 in uh, alcoholic products and cocktails are more alcoholic than beer and then a lot of wines and so therefore you have excess foaming as well. Uh, couple that with the fact that you can never get stuff that cold with a cold plate uh, because you're only going down to ice temperatures, and I'm typically serving a good five, six degrees below that when I'm serving cocktails. Problems, problems, problems. But to get around it, you want a very long flow so that as something comes out of your keg system, it has a long time to calm down before it comes through the compensator and out of, out of the uh, tap, right? And you're not getting as much pressure because you get a pressure, uh, bigger pressure drop along a long line. But uh, also you're going to want to run through two channels of your cold plate, not one two channels of your cold plate so that it has a longer time it can get colder and it's a lot colder a good five degrees colder typically if you run through two versus through one running through more than two doesn't really give you an advantage another thing you might want to take a look at if you're only running cocktail through it and not regular liquids is using uh and it's going to ruin anything but stainless uh it'll ruin the aluminum that most cold plates is made out of eventually but you could look at using a salt solution eutectic solution usually potassium chloride something like this depending on the alcohol content you're running through, you might be able to get hyper-cold stuff. If you calculate it wrong, you'll freeze your line solid, and you know it, it won't burst the uh, – at least it has never when I've missed, made mistakes – burst my cold plate, but it does suck, and then you have to thaw out the cold plate to get it to work. So anyways, because uh, uh, we, have, we, have, we, have we have to get off, right? Well, anyway, so uh, hopefully that uh, gave you uh, some information. Uh, next week, uh, I was going to get to uh, – Kenji had uh, written uh, on the Twitter about shrimp and baking soda. Maybe we'll have time to talk about I that next one week. one more question. Oh, yeah, what's that? Because me and Nastasia were talking about this before the show. We were admiring some of the thinly sliced potato chips on the, somebody's plate that was eating at Roberta's, and we're wondering what your preferences are on potato chips. 
I like, like I like thicker. Like my my, my see, fa- yeah, there you go. My favorite. She's po- right. She my, said Dave's not going to like those. I know. Look, I appreciate any well-made product. So like a thin potato chip that's nicely made, I enjoy. But just for comparison, my favorite potato chips that I've ever had ever are the like the actual original Maui ones that you they've never shipped off the island. That like when people go to Hawaii and they bring them back in bags now. Granted, I first had these like 20 years ago, so I don't know whether or not I would still think they're the best things on earth. But my memory of those thick, like you know, Maui kettle, you know, kettle cooked thick potato chips was that they were kind of God's gift to potato chip world, at least at that time of what things I've had. Uh, I prefer a thick normal to a Ridgies, although I like the fact that rid- that a poorly done Ridgie is better than a poorly done thin chip. You agree with me on this one? I'll agree with you there. Yeah. I think a thin chip is hard to do, so a really good thin chip is probably a thing of beauty. Oh, and by the way, next week I hope to have time to uh, discuss Travis Hawkins from last week's actual question, which is pet peeves and faux pas in the kitchen. So tweet on in to at Cooking Issues or to the Heritage Radio Network for next week's show your favorite kitchen faux pas, and we will talk to them, for instance, using someone's knife without permission, and we will talk about them on next week's Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>